I have a story to tell you. My story is about fabrics and folks like... The Outline World Dispatch. It's Thursday, October 19th, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today on The Dispatch. David Zacks on the secret world of mattress bloggers. So Casper sued um, three sites, Sleepopolis, Sleep Sherpa, and Mattress Nerd. And Gabby Del Valle on immigration detention at the U.S. border. You'll wake up one morning and realize that the night before your client was kind of spirited away and sent, you know, for example, from a detention center here in New Jersey to a detention center hundreds of miles away in the south. Here's the dispatch. The future. Since you're a podcast listener, you've probably heard ads for companies like Casper or Lisa or Purple. They sell mattresses directly to you, delivered to your door in a box, for a much lower price than a lot of other regular mattress stores. But as writer David Zacks reported for Fast Company this week, there is a teeming multi-million dollar world of lawsuits and secrets in the online mattress world. David, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So this is ultimately a story about how big companies or companies on the rise are controlling the narrative around their products. Can you talk to me about what you found and what's going on with Casper in particular? Sure, yeah. So so fundamentally, the story has to do with um, reviews that appear on the internet. And basically what uh, companies have, have discovered and really have known for a while is that uh, people turn to Google and they search for things like, you know, Casper mattress review or mattress review. And that, that signals to, to Google, to, to companies, that these are people interested in buying mattresses. And so um, websites have cropped up that review these mattresses, and then they link to uh, the mattress retailers like Casper or Lisa. And what happens is they, the reviewers wind up getting a cut of the sales that result um, from these clicks. How did you come into the online mattress scene to begin with? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know that I'm a major player on the online mattress scene, but... Um, it's, it's a small group, but as, as it happens, I'm neighbors with, with one of the major players. He's, he's a guy named Kenny Klein. Hey, I'm Kenny Klein, better known as the Slumber Stage. Today, I'm going to unbox the Casper mattress. I was looking for uh, a mattress, and my friend mentioned, oh, my, my friend Kenny can get you a free mattress. These companies just send him mattresses to review, which he does, and that sounded like a great deal. So uh, I went, I walked a couple of blocks to Kenny's apartment, uh, got my free mattress, and um Kenny Klein wound up sort of tipping me to the fact that uh, on that very at that very week, uh, Casper had sued three of his competitors, so three uh, other mattress reviewing website people. Why did they sue them? So Casper sued um, three sites: Sleepopolis, Sleep Sherpa, and Mattress Nerd. It was basically a false advertising claim. So what had happened is um, Casper had had relationships with these sites where they were paying uh, typically $50 per mattress for sales through these reviews. Um, as Casper sort of became the leader in the online mattress space, they ended these affiliate relationships. Their competitors like um, Lisa, uh, Nest Bedding, Purple, they continued to pay these $50 commissions to the mattress review sites. So it was a situation where Casper wasn't paying out and these other brands were paying out. And Casper couldn't help but note that, uh, you know, the, the mattress companies that were paying out were getting more favorable reviews in some of these websites. So what is Sleepopolis and how did it come to be? Um, it was founded by a guy named Derek Hales. And um, Derek Hales worked in search engine marketing for a big firm in uh, Arizona. And um, 
Derek and his, his new wife, they tested a Tuft & Needle mattress. Uh, that's another mattress e-commerce brand. They tested a Casper mattress. And then late in 2014, uh, Derek uh, threw up a couple of web pages comparing his experience with the two mattresses, and he started getting a lot of traffic. And um, then these companies, Tuft & Needle and Casper, started paying him commissions uh, on his traffic, about $50 per mattress. And soon other mattress companies started sending him their mattress to review, and he put up more and more content, earned more and more commissions. Finally, after a few months, he quit his day job to go full-time on Sleepopolis, and his site grew into the number one uh, most trafficked um, affiliate marketing mattress reviewing website on the Internet. Um, currently, it gets about half a million visitors per month, and he made a lot of money off of it. So maybe you can tell me point blank here. Is this all a scam? I think the scary thing is that in the near term, I, I just can't answer that question about a given site. Is this site a scam or not? Is this one of the sites that happens to be honest or, or is it not? You know, I, I think there are a lot of affiliate marketing review sites out there that do really good work. Um, the Wirecutter and Sweet Home that were acquired by the New York Times, those, those reviewers do very diligent work. They will offer you multiple buying options. They sometimes will even steer you to a product that they tell you to your face uh, will, will pay them a lower commission than um, another product. But there are other review sites where really you have no way of knowing if they have essentially auctioned off their uh, number one review to, to the highest bidder. And indeed, I, I saw uh, one of my sources shared with me an email from one mattress reviewer that basically said just that. It said, you know, Sometimes uh, mattress retailers reach out, they send us a mattress, and they're willing to basically bid up um, how much they're willing to pay per mattress that we sell. And if the mattress is good enough, if we basically like it, by all means, we will start to negotiate. What happened to Derek in the end, the, the owner of Sleepopolis? I wish I could tell you. Uh, Derek hails, um, after the resolution of the lawsuit that is the uh, the focus of my story, kind of fell off the map. Um his lawyer really won't let him talk to anyone. Um, there's just sort of speculation about how the lawsuit resolved. Um, our best understanding is that, uh, I mean, this much is known, Casper, uh, the mattress company that, that sued him, floated a loan to Kenny Klein, the, the very guy who gave me my free mattress way back in April of um, 2016. And um, Kenny Klein acquired uh, this website, Sleepopolis. So now it's actually owned by the guy who gave me, gave me my free mattress. So the guy who gave you your free mattress when you first started to look up one is now the guy who is owning the site that you ended up investigating exactly. for a year. <laughs> I, I caught a lucky lucky break from a storytelling point of view. Oh, wait, so are you still using the mattress that you got from, from Kenny or are you using another one? I am. I, I happen to be subletting my apartment uh, uh, to a friend at the moment, but um, yeah, it, it, that was a, that was a Brentwood home. It, it was a, it was kind of a pillow top and a little squishy for my taste. But you know, th- thank you, Kenny, for for my free mattress. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a year later, this resulted in a very very long story about you. Thank you for being a good sport about it. Th- thank you, Kenny. <laughs> David Zacks is a contributing writer for Fast Company. Uh, Be sure to check out his story, The War to Sell You a Mattress is an Internet Nightmare, at fastcompany.com. David, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Power. 
Last month, the Department of Homeland Security put out a request to identify private jails in Texas that could house about 1,000 immigrant detainees. This new detention center would join 36 existing facilities near the U.S.-Mexico border, many of which are in rural areas. Immigrants detained in rural centers like the ones in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California are forced to fight their deportation cases in isolation, far from their families, their communities, and their attorneys. Immigrants arrested in the U.S. and asylum seekers fleeing violence in their home countries are held indefinitely in these facilities, often for the entire duration of their case, which can last months or even years. Gabby Del Valle has been reporting on these facilities. Thanks for being here, Gabby. Thanks, Aaron. Let's talk about the process for what happens when someone is actually detained at the border. Okay. So the scenario is someone is either fleeing violence in their country, trying to get into the U.S., and what happens at that point? There are several ways that people can be detained. If you are crossing the border and you are found by a Customs and Border Protection agent and then apprehended, you can be arrested and put in deportation proceedings. If you arrive at the border at what's called an official port of entry and you present yourself to Customs and Border Protection and say, hey, I'm afraid that if I return to my home country, I could be persecuted or killed, then you go into asylum proceedings. Once you're detained, an officer from United States Citizenship and Immigration Services will conduct what's called a credible fear interview, where they will determine whether or not you actually have a credible fear of returning to your home country. And if they determine that you do, that's when your asylum proceedings begin. And at your credible fear interview, the officer will also determine whether or not you're eligible to be released on parole. And what happens then is that immigration cases are handled in civil courts and not criminal courts, which means that you don't have a right to parole. It's up to the discretion of this individual agent. And a lot of the time, especially since 2014 when we had the surge in unaccompanied minors and families crossing the border, but especially after Trump's inauguration, officers will deny parole for asylum seekers on the grounds that they are either a danger to communities in the U.S. or a flight risk. I feel like a lot of people don't really understand the extent to which people go through just to be in the U.S. It's this long, drawn-out process. There are a lot of hurdles people have to go through, and it's never a cut-and-dry, simple situation where someone can just say, I'm afraid for my life. Can you let me in? And it's just just happens. So the centers are actually put in are also not the best places to be living for three years. In May, Human Rights Watch and a group called Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement put together a report of deaths in immigration detention that were caused by negligence, and they found that in both public and privately run detention facilities, there are plenty of cases where deaths could have been prevented by officers following procedure that prioritized immigrants' health. In June, a woman named Brenda Menjivar Guarardo entered the U.S. from El Salvador, and she presented herself at the border to customs agents, and she said, I have a fear of returning to my country. I'm an asylum seeker. And they transferred her to the Don T. Hudo Residential Center in Taylor, Texas. It's a center for female detainees. And while she was there, they took away her diabetes medicine and gave her different medicine. And according to her attorney, the medicine was so ineffective that and her condition deteriorated so badly that she decided to return to El Salvador instead of 
waiting out her immigration case, even though she said before that she feared for her life if she returned. The attorneys who represent these cases, are they usually nearby these facilities or are they just people who they find on a list? Like, how do they actually access these cases? How do they, you know, provide a service to people who are looking to be represented? It really depends based on where you're located. Uh, There are several studies that have shown that only 14% of detained immigrants have legal representation at all. When you're taken into ICE custody, they give you a list of free or affordable lawyers in your area, but those lawyers are so overburdened that finding representation is really tough. And I spoke to Michael Tan. He's a lawyer with the ACLU who told me that a lot of the time, even when you already have a client, sometimes ICE will just move them to a different facility and you'll wake up in the morning, you'll have notice your client has been moved to San Diego, your client has been moved to Texas. I personally have had this situation happen to me. I think most immigration lawyers who work with detained folks have had this happen to them where you'll wake up one morning and realize that the night before your client was kind of spirited away and sent, you know, for example, from a detention center here in New Jersey to a detention center hundreds of miles away in the south, like in Etowah in Alabama or at Stewart um, in Georgia or at the Gina facility in Louisiana. And you'll have no way of meeting with them. It'll be very difficult to contact them, um, much less continue working with them, um, you know, as they fight their deportation cases. A lot of the times they're not just transferred to a different facility, but also to a different circuit, which means that their case will be handled by a different judge. And that could be beneficial or it could be really detrimental depending on whether or not that judge is favorable to immigrants. It just really varies. What's the next step for this then? Is anyone fighting against this? Is there any silver lining to immigrants coming into this country and not being treated like prisoners? There is a class action lawsuit right now where the ACLU is representing Alejandro Rodriguez. He's an immigrant and a green card holder who was arrested for minor drug possession and then years later picked up by ICE and held indefinitely. Because again, if you're an asylum seeker, you're immediately put into detention. And after 1996, if you are an immigrant who was arrested in the U.S. and you had any kind of criminal record at all, minor drug possession, DUI, hopping a turnstile, or serious things as well, like murder, rape, etc., you were not eligible for bond. So the ACLU is arguing that if people in criminal cases, regardless of what they do, are considered for bond, considered for parole, then immigrants should also have that right. But the federal government is arguing that, especially for asylum seekers who are apprehended at the border, there are no constitutional rights for you because constitutional rights end at the border. What are some potential outcomes of this case then? If the ACLU wins the case, then after six months in detention, regardless of what kind of uh, immigration case you have, an immigration judge will have a bond hearing for you. And they could determine that you're not eligible for parole and you could continue to be detained or they could determine that you are eligible for parole. You could be released. You can, depending on your immigration status, work in the country. You could live with your family or live with your sponsor. You could help your lawyer fight your case from outside of detention center. And that's the absolute best case scenario. Gabby Dovalle is a staff writer here at The Outline. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Aaron.
And so we've reached the end of another Dispatch. But we're here Monday through Thursday, so come back and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Did you know we're on Spotify? We're on Spotify. I'm Aaron Edwards. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday.